Uh, let's bow for a moment of prayer together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for tonight. What a great joy you give us to be able to spend this midweek in the word of the Lord. We truly are a blessed people. And you've given us your word and you've challenged us through your word to help us understand you. And through that, Lord, how it is we are to live our lives, how we live in light of our great and glorious King. We know that one day you're going to come again. We don't know when that day is going to be, but we anticipate it. We eagerly anticipate it, knowing that one day we will be home with you. One day we will come back with you and rule and reign on this planet and ultimately for all eternity with our God. We thank you for that assurance. We thank you that your word is very clear about what it means to be a child of the living God. And we are grateful that we can come tonight to learn more about what that means. And so as we anticipate the future, as we anticipate all that's going to happen in the future, that will compel us to tell others about Christ. Lord, guide us tonight through your word. May your spirit teach us much. May we grow deep. And may we leave here tonight differently than when we arrived because we have learned more about you in the coming day of the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you got your Bible, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, as we make our way through this long book of three chapters. It's going to take us a while to get through chapter 2, because we want to be able to outline for you the events that are going to come to be in the days ahead. It's called uh, the church and the coming day of the Lord. In the first chapter, it was all about consolation. In the second chapter, it's all about correction. In other words, in the first chapter, it was about consoling those in Thessalonica amidst all their adversity. We did that by helping you understand that Paul would praise them for what God had done in their lives. And he would also promise them that the Lord was going to come and upon promising them that, he told them he was going to continually pray for them. That was the consolation that he gave to those in Thessalonica. When you come to chapter 2, it's all about correction. It's all about correcting everything around prophecy. Helping set in order those things so they would understand about the day of the Lord. And that's what chapter 2 is about. So it begins this way. Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. We don't want you to be disturbed, shaken, worried about the day of the Lord already upon you, already arrived. Which leads us to this. What is the day of the Lord? How do we understand the day of the Lord? Very important term. It is, it is, it is an eschatological term. That is, it's a, a term that deals with end times. It's a term that deals specifically with God intervening in human history in order to enact his judgment and wrath upon mankind. That's why it's called the day of the Lord. It's also important to note that the day of the Lord is going to come in a certain manner. It's going to come like a thief. 
Go back with me, if you would, to chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 1. Paul said this in his first letter to the church at Thessalonica. Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. How does a thief come? A thief does not announce his arrival. A thief doesn't call you on the phone and tell you, this is when I'm coming. A thief doesn't send you a text message. A thief doesn't send you an email in advance as to his arrival or a letter or any other kind of communication. He comes suddenly. He comes unexpectedly. He comes shockingly and terrifyingly because he, keeps, he gets you unawares. Well, the Bible tells us that the day of the Lord is going to be like a thief in the night. Now, that term is also used in the book of Revelation. Revelation 16, verse number 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Now, this is about the gathering together in the valley of Megiddo. In the tribulation, when the armies of the east gather together in that big valley called the Jezreel Valley, the Valley of Ezdorolon, it's the Valley of Megiddo. It has three different names, but it's all the same valley. Huge valley. If you've been to Israel with me, you've seen it. You've been on top of Megiddo. You've overlooked the valley. You've been on top of Nazareth, seen the valley. And so it's the kings of the east. They gather together in the Valley of Megiddo. And that's when the Lord says, Behold, I am coming like a thief, and blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. But he says, behold, stand amazed because everybody is gathering together for the great war of the great day of God. But he's going to come unexpectedly. And yet, even though he comes unexpectedly, the Bible's very clear, and the Lord makes it very clear, that there are going to be certain precursors that are going to occur before the day of the Lord. Turn back with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, verse number 42, the great Olivet Discourse. It's that great teaching that our Lord had on Wednesday uh, of Passion Week when he would talk to the disciples about his coming again. And in it, he says these words in verse number 42, Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour, when you do not think he will. In other words, we can pinpoint the exact hour when Jesus is going to come again. He's going to come at the exact hour that you don't think he's going to come. So if you're thinking he's going to come, he's not going to come. But if you don't think he's going to come, that's when he's going to come. That's what he said. He's going to come at an hour that you don't think he's going to arrive. That's because he's going to come like a thief. Now note, that phrase is never used of the translation of the church or the rapture of the church 
when it comes to what we would say, and if you look at your outline what, or, or on the thing, what we see as the rapture of the church or the translation of the church into glory. We're talking about the second coming. Very important. Because here's a question people always ask, and it's a great question. Where in the New Testament does it tell us about two second comings, right? We know he's already been there once. He came, he died, he was buried, rose again. He's coming again. But if there are two comings, okay, that is, he's going to come and we're, and we're going to meet him in the air, okay, and then we're going to come with him back down to earth, okay, why is it the Bible does not spell that out? Well, let me ask you a question. In the Old Testament, there was no detail concerning two comings of the Messiah. Every prophet saw the arrival of the Messiah as one coming. That's why when the Messiah came, they didn't like the Messiah because he didn't do what they thought he was going to do based on Old Testament prophecy. Oh, yes, he healed everybody, and yes, he fed everybody, and yes, he did all these miraculous kinds of things, but he preached an offensive message. It was a message against their religious establishment. So... Because he didn't do what they wanted to do, even though they hailed him as their king when he came into Jerusalem on that triumphal Monday some 2,000 years ago, and they hailed him as, his, as their king, and they took off their garments, and they waved the palm branches because they wanted him to have all of them because they're willing to surrender him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You are the coming one. We're going to bless you. Hosanna to the king. That was on Monday. But on Friday... He was crucified because the king didn't fulfill their expectations. Remember Luke 19, when it talks about that triumphal entry, they praised him because of the miracles they had seen. They never praised him because of the message that he spoke. They loved the miracles. They just didn't like the message. But he was the king. He came and presented the kingdom. But they rejected the king and his kingdom. So they crucified him. But both comings of the Messiah are very clearly taught in the Old Testament. Just like the translation of the church into heaven and the second coming to earth are very clearly taught in the New Testament. It's what theologians call biblical harmonization. Biblical harmonization is a very important way to interpret Scripture. That is, biblical, uh, the Bible is very harmonious. And so when you look at all the different aspects of Scripture, you come to a conclusion as to the truth. For example, the triune nature of God. We believe that God is three in one. He is one God, manifests himself in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We know that because God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all called God. They all have the same attributes. They all experience all the same things. So you can go through the New Testament and the Old Testament, understand the triune nature of the living God. Although the Bible never says that God is triune. The Bible never says that God is a trinity, right? That's the word we use. But the Bible never says that God is triune. We call it the triunity of God. One God manifests himself in three persons. But it doesn't mean that God is not triune, because he is. 
So we can go through the New Testament and say, well, the, the Bible never says there's going to be a, quote, rapture of the church. Answer to that is true. That's true. But there is a catching away of the church. That's what Paul teaches in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse number 17. When we who are alive remain shall be caught up. The word is harpazo, a word used uh, 14 different times in the New Testament. It's used of Philip in Acts chapter 8 when he was caught up from where he was with the Ethiopian eunuch and landed in Caesarea Maritima there on the Mediterranean Sea in Israel. Same word used to the Apostle Paul when he was caught up into heaven, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He was translated from earth into heaven and he received this vision of heaven so great that he could not even speak about it. So harpazo is a word used, it's the catching away of an individual. And it's a word of violent catching away, which I will show you in a moment why that's important when it comes to the catching away of the church. So even though the phrase thief in the night is not a phrase associated with the rapture of the church into glory, it's always associated with the return of Christ and the revelation of Christ back to the earth. That's what Matthew 24 is about. That's what Revelation 16 is about. That is what uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 is all about. Make sense? So biblical harmonization helps you understand biblical truth. And so why there might not be a specific word that's used of, quote, the rapture of the church, it's a Latin word anyway, but the catching away of the church is a phrase used 14 different times in the New Testament to speak about the snatching away of an individual or a group of individuals, as the church is. And therefore, we understand that there's something different about meeting the Lord in the air and then coming with the saints, coming with him back to the earth. There's something uniquely different there. In John 14, he says, let not your heart be troubled. Even the, even the crucifixion, his disciples are all afraid of what's going to happen next. He says what? Calm down. Don't let your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house there are many mansions, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go and I prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, that is uniquely different than the saints coming back with him, back to earth, during the, quote, day of the Lord. Okay? One, we go to meet him. Here we come back with him. Very unique as the Lord explains that. So you have John 14, 1 to 3. You have 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, that speaks specifically of the church being caught up, being translated into glory, because there is a marriage supper of the Lamb. That's Revelation 19. Uh, yeah, Revelation 19, verses 1 to 6. So you have the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, where does that take place? It takes place in glory as you understand what is going on with a Jewish wedding and how the bridegroom is going to present the bride to his father. And then he brings the bridegroom with him and presents the bridegroom to the earth. That's what happens in a Jewish wedding, which lasts, by the way, seven days. Tribulation lasts seven years. 
And so biblical harmonization helps you understand and decipher what is the difference between the what we call the rapture of the church and the revelation of the Christ. But it's still one coming manifesting itself in two phases. Our Lord in the Old Testament was going to come, and he did. All about the incarnation of the Messiah. But what the Old Testament prophets saw, or what they didn't see, was the church age. That's why it's called a mystery in the New Testament. A mystery is something concealed in the old, revealed in the new. And so because it was concealed in the old, the prophets never saw the church age. And so when Daniel had a prophecy, the 70 weeks of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, the church wasn't included in the first 69 weeks because there was no church. But there's coming a 70th week, a 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. That's yet to be fulfilled. That 70th week is this section here called the seven-year tribulation. And Daniel explains that tribulation in Daniel chapter 9, verses 27 and following. And so because he does, because the church wasn't in the first 69 weeks, great chance he, the church is not in the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy either, because Daniel had no idea about the church age. And that's why the church isn't here during the tribulation. But more on that as we go. So the phrase biblical harmonization is very important to understand. So when you look at the phrase thief in the night, anybody see the movie The Thief in the Night back in 1972? It came out. Raise your hand real high. See how old you guys are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 1972 it came out. In 1978 came out A Distant Thunder. That was the sequel to A Thief in the Night. In 1984 came out uh, The Image of the Beast. That was the sequel off of the sequel. Okay, And then came out, and I didn't see the fourth one, it was called uh, The Prodigal Planet. I never saw that one. They were supposed to come out with the fifth one, which was Armageddon, they never did. But they came out with this trilogy of, of movies to depict the end times. And we used to gather together for uh, um, uh, a, Chris, uh, a New Year's Eve service, and, and we'd get together, we'd have communion, and then we'd show the movie A Thief in the Night, and then the next year we'd show A Distant Thunder, and the next year we'd show the image of the beast as we anticipate a new year and maybe the arrival of the Messiah. But The Thief in the Night had a lot of errors in it theologically. So did the image of the beast. So did a distant thunder. And so you always have to keep your finger in the text when you're looking at prophecy and trying to understand all that the Bible says concerning the arrival of the king. So there's this coming this day, the day of the Lord. It's going to come like a thief in the night. When it comes to the translation of the church into glory, it's never described as a thief in the night. The Lord's going to take us home. It's going to be the last trump. The dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain shall be cut up together with them in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But it's never described as Christ coming like a thief because he's not coming to steal anything. He's coming to retrieve his bride, that his bride might be with him in glory. And it's a word um, that speaks of the imminency of his return because with the rapture of the church, we know that Jesus is going to come. There are 17 different passages in Scripture that describe the imminent return of Christ, all dealing with the church 
leaving, we going home to be with the Lord. It's called our blessed hope in Titus chapter 2. 17 different times in the New Testament, we're talking about going to be with the Lord and being in his presence. Very important. Because the New Testament writers lived in anticipation of the imminent coming of Christ. That's why in 1 John chapter 3, John says, He who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he himself is pure. What is it about the imminent return of Christ that causes us to live a pure life? You just never know when he's going to come. It's like when you're, you're, you're home alone and your parents say they're going to come, right? They're going to be home. But you don't know when they're going to be home. But you know they're coming, right? You just don't know at what time they're going to arrive. But it helps you live a clean and pure life until they get there because you never know when they're going to show up. Well, there's something about the arrival of the Messiah to take us home to be with him that causes us to live a pure and holy life. We never know when he's going to come again. We live in anticipation of that. We live in expectation of that. It's called the imminent return of Christ. And there's nothing that has to happen before this event. There are things that will happen, but on the prophetic calendar, nothing has to happen before the translation of the church into glory. Nothing. There will be things that do happen. But in terms of prophecy, nothing has to happen. But when you talk about the revelation of Christ to earth, him coming like a thief in the night, there are certain precursors that must take place that will move you that direction toward the end. And even though you'll be in the midst of a tribulation, not we won't, we'll be gone, but those who are here on earth will be in the midst of a tribulation, they still not, will not know the day, nor will they know the hour. They can guess, but no man knows about the arrival of the Messiah when he comes for his people Israel. Very important to understand that. The day of the Lord. Let me tell you about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is called the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah chapter 30. It's called the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, Daniel 9, 27. It's called Jehovah's unusual and extraordinary work in Isaiah 28. It's called the day of Israel's calamity in Deuteronomy 32, Obadiah 12 to 14. It's called the tribulation in Deuteronomy 4. The indignation, Isaiah 26. The overflowing scourge, Isaiah 28. The day of vengeance, Isaiah 34. The year of recompense, Isaiah 34, verse number 8. A time of trouble, Daniel 12, 1. A day of wrath, distress, wasteness, desolation, darkness, gloominess, clouds, thick darkness, the trumpet, the day of alarm. All in the Old Testament. 19 times in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is referred to, but it's described as a day of gloominess, a day of distress, a day of darkness. Look what it says back in um, the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah. Zephaniah was a contemporary of Jeremiah. And when you read Old Testament prophecy, remember, when the Old, Testament's prof Old Testament prophets prophesied, they prophesied about an upcoming prophecy, and also about an extended prophecy. Because the first one would be fulfilled, you can trust their word for the second one. And so when Zephaniah would prophesy, along with Jeremiah, about the captivity of Judah, which was the Babylonian captivity, uh, he would prophesy, not just about their captivity, but he would prophesy beyond that to the coming day of the Lord. So they would understand 
how severe their sin was and what would happen if they truly did not repent. And so in Zephaniah chapter 1, it says, Near is the great day of the Lord. Near. Now, remember, Zephaniah is prophesying, okay? He's prophesying about the Babylonian captivity, but he's talking about the day of the Lord. That phrase, eschatological phrase, used 19 times in the Old Testament, six times in the New Testament, 25 times altogether in the Bible to speak about the time that God intervenes in the history of man to enact his wrath and judgment upon man. But Zephaniah sees it as near. Remember Enoch, way back in Genesis chapter 5, talked about him a couple of weeks ago. What did he prophesy about? Jude 14 and 15. He prophesied about the Son of Man coming with all of his holy ones to deal out retribution on all the ungodly people because he prophesied about the second coming of the Messiah. And so Zephaniah, in talking about Judah and the upcoming Babylonian captivity, which was a few years yet away, was also prophesying about the coming day of the Lord. And he says, near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. It's a day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress, destruction, desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men. So they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. So in Zephaniah's prophecy about Judah's captivity in Babylon, that's how he begins prophesies during the reign of King Josiah, he also incorporates within that prophecy the day of the Lord and it's coming quickly. And what's going to happen when the Messiah intervenes in human history? In the New Testament, the day of the Lord is described as the wrath of God in Revelation 15.1, the hour of trial, Revelation 3.10, the great day of the wrath of the Lamb of God, Revelation 6, 16. The wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians 1, 10. The wrath, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. The great tribulation, Matthew 24, 21. The tribulation, Matthew 24, 29. And the hour of judgment, Revelation 14, 7. So as you see, the day is a specific time, an event, a series of events, where God is always known how, by the judgment he executes. Remember Psalm 9, verse number 16? The Lord God of Israel is known by the judgment he executes. We will tell you this over and over again. God is best known not in the blessings he gives, but in the judgment he bestows. He is best known in the judgment in which he executes. And God will be best known during this time. There we go, right here. The tribulation with the seals and the trumpets and the bowls and his return because he will put himself on display. And everybody will know that it's him. Revelation 6. Look at this. Revelation 6. 
the sixth seal. Remember, in the book of Revelation, there are seven seals. There are seven trumpets, and there are seven bowls of judgment. Seven seals are broken first. When the seventh seal is broken, seven trumpets blow. When the seventh trumpet blows, seven bowls of judgment are poured out. The seals span the seven years of tribulation. The first four happen, first five basically happen during the first half of the tribulation. Seal six and seven are basically the latter half of the tribulation. It's called the great and terrible day of the Lord. But when the seventh seal is broken, seven trumpets blow. And while the seven seals span the seven-year tribulation, not one each year, but they span the whole seven years, by the time you come to the seventh seal, the trumpets blow rather rapidly, and then the bowls are poured out continuously in constant judgment in rapid succession. So it grows with intensity throughout the seven-year tribulational period. Very important to understand that. So when you come to the sixth seal in Revelation 6, okay, you're at the latter half of the tribulation. Listen to what it says. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. The whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll, when it was rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from who? The presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? You see, God is known by the judgment he executes. So don't think that during the tribulational period, people are not going to know who's doing this. They are. That's why they beg the rocks to fall on them during earthquakes, because they think they can escape the wrath of the Lamb, not knowing that once they die, they enter the presence of God as judge. See, they, they don't understand that. But you see, they know who it is. Because God will make himself clearly known all throughout the tribulation. And of course, when he arrives in all of his glory and all of his splendor. The day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord is not the day of Christ. The day of the Lord is not the day of the Lord Jesus. And the day of the Lord is not the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a different day. If you've got your Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to do a lot of Bible study tonight, so hopefully your, your fingers are nimble and you're licking them and you're ready to go because we're going to go from verse to verse to verse to verse because, after all, this is a Bible study, so we want you to study the Bible. Philippians chapter 1, verse number 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, the day of Christ Jesus is not the day of the Lord. The day of Christ Jesus, look at verse number um, 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. When is the day of Christ? Well, 
Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Verse number 16. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. The day of Christ, the day of the Lord Jesus, is not the day of the Lord. Those, that particular day is a day in which believers receive their rewards. That's why you have a translation of the church into glory, and you have the judgment right here, the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, where we experience the day of the Lord Jesus, where believers receive the rewards. You talked about this, I think, last time, the Bema seat. It's different than the great white throne judgment. That's only for unbelievers. This is for believers. And they're not going to be together. They're uniquely separate and distinct and different. And so the day of Christ, the day of the Lord Jesus, is a day where believers receive their reward. So the day of the Lord is not the day of Christ. And the day of the Lord and the day of Christ is not the day of God. Okay? There's another day. It's called the day of God. 2 Peter chapter 3. You got your Bible? Turn there. Second, quickly, quickly, the slower you are, the slower I will be. 2 Peter 3, verse number 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. The day of God. Because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay? So the day of God is... The eternal state. That's the day of God. It's no longer the day of man. It's no longer the day of Satan. It's a day of God. Where God is all in all. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. So the day of the Lord, this day here, day of tribulation, darkness, gloominess, wrath, all that, is not the day of Christ. That happens before that. And the day of God is the new heavens and the new earth because God is all in all. See, aren't you glad you came tonight? Now you can separate all those things, the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, and the day of God. Very important to understand those things because they all help you understand the return of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, because the Lord is going to come like a thief, suddenly, unexpectedly, People always ask this question, how can that possibly happen? If there is a seven-year period between the time the church is translated and he comes back again, which, by the way, is not true. The seven years does not begin until the Antichrist confirms the covenants with Israel. That's when the seven, according to Daniel 9, that's when the seven-year begins. So the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy is a seven-year tribulation, but it does not begin until the Antichrist makes a covenant or signs a covenant with Israel, the peace treaties with Israel. He confirms them. He doesn't make them. He confirms them. Very important. When you look at the Abraham Accords that were done under our former president with what was happening with the Arab nations, Right? So the Antichrist is going to confirm peace treaties with Israel. Not make peace treaties, confirm them. That's when the seven year begins. It doesn't happen as soon as the earth is translated, or the church is translated, but it's going to happen soon here. And so 
Yes, it's going to be seven years. Oh, by the way, the seven years are counted by 360 days, not 365 days. When you determine Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9, about the time in which Israel was sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls around the city, and you begin to add up all the weeks and days, that's how you come to an exact day and time Messiah would come into Israel. And if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that during Passion Week, we talked to you about the exact day because it, it spells it out for you in the book of Daniel as prophecy. That's why prophecy is so important to understand. And so because it's spelled out accurately, it's based on not a 365-day calendar because the Jewish calendar is 360 days. And so you have to remember that. So when it talks about three and a half years or 42 months or 1,260 days in the book of Revelation, that's three and a half years based on 360-day year cycle, not 365-day year cycle. Make sense? Some of you guys are like, wow, man, I got to take a nap. I am worn out already. Okay, so just stay, stay with me, follow this through with me. You can always listen on the tape or listen, download it and listen to it again. But that's very important to understand that. So even though he's going to come like a thief, and even though you might think, well, seven years, oh, yeah, we can read the book of Revelation. We know when he's going to come back again. Not necessarily. Because Jesus said, no man knows the day nor the hour. Because he's going to come in an hour that you do not think he will. That's why before that he says, as it was in the days of Noah... So it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. How was it in the days of Noah? They were told judgment was coming. Who told them? Noah told them. Methuselah. Remember we talked about him? Son of Enoch. Enoch began to walk with God at the birth of Methuselah. He lived 969 years. His name means when he dies, it shall come. What shall come? Judgment. So, even though they knew that when Methuselah died, there'd be judgment... Even though Noah was a preacher of righteousness and said judgment was coming, nobody cared. Nobody cared. And there was no wrath. There were no seals and trumpets and bowls being poured out on the world. You just had some old guy with his kids building an ark in the desert where there was no water and never rained before. So they're thinking, wow, this guy's crazy. But he warned them. And all of a sudden, Noah went to the ark. The door was shut. Noah did not shut the door. The Bible's very clear. God shut the door. Because if Noah shut the door, he would have opened the door for all the screaming people on the outside. But God shut the door to make sure no one could get in. Because he had been warned for 969 years of Methuselah's life. It's almost 1,000 years they were warned. They were warned for 120 years when Noah preached, the preacher of righteousness preached the gospel. But even the patience of God wears thin. When he says it's up, it's up, it's over. And yet, there are many precursors before this day happens. The day of the Lord sets up for this magnanimous day, this blessed day in which Christ comes back to earth. What are the precursors? Well, there's going to be an Elijah-like forerunner before the Messiah comes. How do we know that? Malachi, book of Malachi, that's always a good place to go. Malachi chapter four. 
Malachi chapter 4. Verse number 5. Great prophecy. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great day and the terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So there's coming this Elijah-like prophet. Or is it actually Elijah who's going to come again? But it says... Behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great day of the Lord. Does that mean that Elijah is actually going to come back? Remember, he never died, right? He was translated into glory. Well, let's answer that together. Let's look, look at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Angel Gabriel comes to Zacharias, the priest, while he was doing his priestly duties, tells him he's going to have a, have a son. Son's name is going to be what? John the Baptist, Right? He and his wife were up in years. She was barren. God did something incredible. She was with child. And the angel Gabriel says, you're going to have a boy. You're going to have a boy. You know what this boy's going to be like? He says, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Verse 15, he will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. While yet in his mother's womb, he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn their hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Ah, so John is not Elijah. But he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Very important statement. Why? Well, go to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 11, these words are spoken. Christ says, truly I say to you, among those born of a woman, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men taken by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is who? Elijah. Who was to come? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Did you get that? So is Elijah actually going to come? Or is one like Elijah who's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Because Jesus said, if you believe John's message about the king of his kingdom, you'd believe me as your king. And John the Baptist would have fulfilled the prophecy of Malachi 4, verse number 5. But he's not John the Baptist. So, no wonder Elijah's still going to come. John even said in John chapter 1, I am not Elijah. I'm not. But he came in the spirit and power of Elijah because that's what Gabriel said he was going to do. That's exactly what he did. And so when you come to the book of Revelation, book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 11. Turn there with me if you would, please. Revelation 11. These words are spoken. 
Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, verse number one. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations that they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years. Now, why is that important? Because it's 96 A.D. John was on the island of Patmos. We know it's 96 A.D. because he was sent to Patmos by Domitian. And he was the ruler in Rome at the time. So we know the, 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 the approximate time of the book of Revelation. 95, 96 A.D. Which, by the way, will help you understand Matthew 24 and why in Matthew 24, none of those events None of those events describe the coming day of the Lord. Because there are people who are all millennial who believe that all the events in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, all happened in 70 AD when the Roman governor Titus came in and plundered Jerusalem and, and destroyed the city. The problem is that what happens in Matthew 24 did not take place in AD 70. That's a problem. Because John in A.D. 96, sees a temple in Revelation 11. Because the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. He's supposed to measure that temple. Why is that important? Because of the next line. It says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, they are going to prophesy. Why is that important? Because this imagery is taken from the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 4, where there were two witnesses, one Joshua and one Zerubbabel. One was a high priest and one was a ruler. And so they were the witnesses that would lead Israel back to rebuild and be restored once again. Now, when there's going to be this third temple that's going to be built on Mount Zion in Israel, in Jerusalem, this third temple that's going to be built, there's going to be two witnesses again. And maybe one's going to be Elijah or like Elijah. Maybe others going to be Enoch because Enoch and Elijah never died. Some think it's going to be Moses and Elijah. Maybe it's going to be Joshua and Zerubbabel. I don't know. If the Lord's looking for volunteers, I'll be one. I'll be one of the two witnesses. Because as you read on, it says this. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. Wow, wouldn't that be great? Open your mouth. <laughs> Like a dragon, just devour, incinerate everybody who comes against you. Wow, wouldn't it be great? That's what they're going to do for three and a half years. Just read on through the story. The Antichrist, the beast, will slay them. And they'll lay in the streets for three days. And the world will have the greatest party it's ever had. It'll be the day of dead witnesses. And after those three days, God's going to take them right up to glory. 
They're going to rise right up and all the world's going to see. But there's two witnesses. One like Elijah, one like Enoch, one like Moses. They do things, as it goes on to say, these words... Uh, it says, these have the power to shut up the sky, so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophecy. That's why some think it's Elijah. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. That's why some think it's Moses. We don't know that. We just know there's two witnesses that God's going to use. And why are they important? Because for three and a half years, they're going to share the gospel. They're going to preach the gospel. And when they preach the gospel, there's going to be 144,000 Jews that are saved. Remember, when the, earth is when the church is translated to glory, there are no believers left on earth. Nobody. So, how are people going to get saved? Faith comes by hearing, hearing concerning the word about the Christ, Romans 10, 17. So how are they going to get saved? God's going to raise up two witnesses. They're going to preach the gospel for three and a half years, 1260 days. As they do, it tells us in the book of Revelation, the seventh chapter, these words. And I heard a number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. It says that these will receive a mark from God. And these 144,000 will not die. How do we know that? Revelation 14. I looked and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on the harps. And they, the 144,000, sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Antichrist is going to mark his people with what is called the mark of the beast, the image of the beast. God is going to mark his 144,000 Jewish evangelists who are going to hear the gospel because of two witnesses. And those 144,000 Jewish evangelists now are going to begin to preach the gospel, but God's going to protect them. They cannot die. Because in Revelation 14, you're near the end of the tribulation, and they're standing on Mount Zion. So they made it all the way to the end. How does that happen unless God protects them? And God does, the, does do that. So you're going to have two witnesses that are going to share the gospel for three and a half years, and with that, 144,000 Jews are going to be saved. And from their testimony, other Gentiles will get saved because we know that Jews and Gentiles will enter into the millennial reign of Christ, which is right here for a thousand years. Jews and Gentiles enter into the millennial kingdom. So we know that Gentiles get saved as well in the tribulation because of two witnesses who end up dying in the middle of the tribulation, 144,000 Jewish evangelists and an angel that flies in mid-heaven, Revelation 14, verse number 6, and I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs 
of waters. So what do you have? You have people coming to Christ in the tribulation because during the tribulation, nobody's saved. So God raises up two witnesses. Maybe it's Enoch and Elijah. They come back. They never died. They never saw death. Only two people in the Bible that never did. They come back. They begin to preach. They had the supernatural power. People come to saving faith. 144,000 Jewish evangelists. They begin to preach the gospel. Gentiles are saved. You have an angel flies around them in heaven. And people are born again. But the precursor is that there's going to be an Elijah-like figure that's going to come before the day of the Lord. That's one precursor. There's another. There are many of them, to be honest with you. But there's another. Let me give you this one. There's going to be a worldwide rebellion against God, led by the Antichrist. That's found in our text in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where it says, let no, one, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Not apostasy, but the apostasy. So it's a certain apostasy. It's a certain falling away. It's a certain denouncement of the faith. The apostasy. And that apostasy is associated with, as you read on, and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object or worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That's what Daniel calls the abomination of desolation. It's what Christ referred to, refers to in Matthew 24 as the abomination of, Dan, uh, of Daniel's prophecy. Okay, It's when the Antichrist, who has already come in peace, because he comes as the rider on the white horse and the first seal that's broken, he comes with a bow but no arrows. That means he, he conquers without a battle. He conquers without going to war. He becomes a political figure. He becomes somebody appointed to bring peace to the world. He comes to bring unity to the world. That's the new buzzword today in politics, unity. How do we bring unity to the world? He does that because there is one called the false prophet. The false prophet is the religious leader. The Antichrist is the military political leader. Until the abomination of desolation, where the Antichrist devours the prophet, sets himself up as God in the temple in Jerusalem and demands that everybody worships him. That's where Revelation 12 comes into play. And Israel then has to flee to the wilderness. Isn't it interesting that this past week, the Pope had gathered together in Ur of the Chaldees. He'd gone back to Abraham's birthplace because the Pope was interested in gathering together. Oh, by the way, Ur of the Chaldees is where there was a, a, a mammoth idolatry and, and child sacrifice. That's where Abraham was, was called from. Remember, he was called from Ur of the Chaldees. God called him. He was a Gentile before he was ever a Jew, right? So Jews were Gentiles before they were ever Jews. 
Abraham was a Gentile. He was a pagan Gentile. God called Abraham. He crossed the great river Euphrates. That's what it means to be a Hebrew, to cross the river. He crossed the river. He became the Jew, the father of a Jewish nation. So the Pope goes to Ur of the Chaldees because why? He wants to gather Catholics, Jews, and Muslims together so that they're able to do what he has called that fraternity, that humble fraternity, that religious fraternity where all religions come together under the papacy. That is the Pope's ambition. That's the direction in which he's going. He's made it very clear that's his purpose. And so all that plays into the scenario of beginning to understand how a false prophet will rise to power, gaining the religions of the world to unify them together. The Antichrist has to have a false prophet because he can't get unity just by having a huge military. He can't obtain unity just by having a strong economic system. He must have the religious establishment because he wants he has military power economic power, and he has religious power, he has all power. And that's why the abomination of desolation is a precursor to the arrival of the Messiah before he comes again. All these things point us to the, the great and terrible day of the Lord. The good news is we won't be here. We're not looking for Antichrist, we're looking for Christ. Anticipating his coming again. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you, Lord, for tonight, a chance to be in your word. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to examine the scripture. So much to study, so much to look at, so much to think about. We pray, Lord, that you'd remove all the, all the cobwebs and confusion that we might be able to clearly understand Jesus is coming again. And when he comes again, what a glorious day that will be. And we know, Lord, that you're going to come again in retribution that you might deal out your wrath on those who do not know you and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. May that compel us to preach the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.